Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. On this podcast, we chat to authors about the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I welcome Benjamin Stevenson. Benjamin is an award-winning stand-up comedian and author. His first novel, Greenlight, was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for the Best Debut Crime Fiction and was published in the USA and the UK. Today, we talk about his new novel, Either Side of Midnight. As co-host, we have Sam Elliott joining us, who has just started up his own literary podcast, The Right Way Podcast. It's such an honour, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here. And it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work and you've given it a lot of thought and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. (laughs) Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to... An interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about (laughs) and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it. And I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoying listening to the podcast. (laughs) That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Welcome back to the Words and Nerds podcast. Author, comedian, Benjamin Stevenson. We last spoke a long time ago about your novel Greenlight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a while. It has. Like I was saying before, it feels like a long time ago, but it also doesn't. But today we're here talking about Either Side of Midnight, a creepy, creepy story, which I can't wait to talk about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, scary. And it seems to, when I was writing it, I knew it was scary and it's gotten scarier um even in the the six months since we sent it to the printer and and now it's been out about six weeks so it's i tried to make it scary and i I think i i landed on something i think you succeeded look we're also welcoming uh guest co-host tonight sam elliott sam has uh, interviewed a broad range of creatives for a print publication over the last five years and he's launching his own podcast the right way spelt w-r-i-t-e so Always, there's enough room for all of us podcasters and we need to stick together. So welcome, Sam. Thank you. I just get sick of my own voice, so I'm so glad there's two others. You have such a good voice for it. So, <laughs> no, I think... Now, Benjamin, either side of midnight, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what the novel is about? Sure. So it's a crime novel um, and basically it opens in a busy TV studio on a kind of nightly current affairs, uh, let's say light entertainment program, you know, the ones, the project, Sean McAuliffe, Jimmy Fallon, all those kind of ones. Um, and the host is doing his monologue and he seems a bit nervous and the cast and crew are kind of chatting about uh, that he might propose to his girlfriend, which is why he is nervous. And at the end of the broadcast, he reaches into his pocket, turns to the camera directly, says to his partner, I love you. But instead of pulling out a ring, he pulls out a gun and he shoots himself. And that's broadcast live to over a million viewers. And his identical twin brother uh, doesn't think that it's a suicide. So he hires a private investigator to look into it. And they both try and figure out if there's more than one way to kill someone and how can it be murder if the victim pulled the trigger in front of the nation. So that's kind of the elevator version. Mm, fantastic beginning. I loved uh, reading that. Even with the the premise describing it, I mean, there's there's so many. It's so densely layered. There's so much to it, and the, the more you read, the more you unpack. Obviously, 
but I wanted to know what essentially it was that you felt that you needed to get right, given the subject matter. And I know that Danny's going to expand on that with the themes because um, there's so many. What did you enter into writing this in the first place, penning it? And I'm assuming it changed quite a lot uh, the more you wrote it. Uh, what, what did you need to get right or felt that you needed to get right in order to kind of like push send and see it go to the printers? Hey, okay. Uh, yeah, there were, there were two key things that I knew I had to nail. So I came up with the idea of this opening scene uh, independently. It's inspired by a, um, uh, something that happened for real in the 70s on Fox News in America. Um, and I just, I've been on TV sets and I know I could do the flurry of the people in that room and the spotlights and the beaded sweat and the stress and to add a death into that. I just thought it was fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, I mean that in the most um, oblique way possible. I thought it was a great opening to a novel. So I wrote that scene and then I write crime novels. And so I wrote that scene independently of a plot. And then I realized, well, this isn't a crime novel. I mean, it solved itself, right? <laughs> and all of our readers, automatically give you that suspension of disbelief for the first little bit if they're reading a book about a suicide it's gonna be a murder like <laughs> otherwise there's no book like so there's a tacit agreement between you and the reader of what what is going to happen because there's 330 pages left to go so i was very aware of that and and what you put in the constraints of the genre and how you make that an effective crime novel. the second thing is once i landed on the plot and how it would expand out into this much, much larger story that pulls influences from a few different areas. Um, it had to be believable. It had to make sense. And I mean that in the most traditional way of the old-fashioned Annie Wilkes, don't cheat kind of thing. But I also, it was really interesting to me because I wrote the first draft, and it was very real. Um, and it was too real. People didn't believe it because of how real it was. And I, and I got it back to my editor and they were like, these bits don't work. And I'm like, those bits are the bits I didn't make up. <laughs> uh, and so you have to line it up with the real world in a way that you're able to touch on certain things and build this kind of thrilling crime novel out of that so that it's plausible and believable in the real world. But if you really push into uh, people's, fears and the really nasty stuff that's going on in the world it's too much so that was a really fine line in making it believable um versus making it pacey thriller and also respectful because it handles a lot of mental health issues as well and i, I was very aware um that i was dealing with some sensitive topics um when you're writing about suicide it's, it's kind of um a given um that it's sensitive but i was very aware um when i was writing that i wanted to do it right Mm, absolutely now the premise of suicide on live television or social media it's never been more relevant right i mean the awful things that we hear about even just recently that have happened online and it's far more difficult to control than like you said in the 70s that wouldn't have you know it's a lot of planning involved and only very few people could have done that but now with the internet it just and I'm not just talking about suicide, just a whole host of awful things that can happen on live streaming that you can't always control. And so it's an interesting topic to explore. Is that why, besides, you know, a great premise for a crime novel, is that part of what you wanted to explore, this new world where it's so new to us, we're making so many mistakes as we go along the way with social media and live streaming, but it's still 
I feel like that our generation is the guinea pigs to all of this. Absolutely. I think, um, and it's by no means is it a techno thriller, but it's focused on technology and how it's changing our lives. Um, the, the event that inspired it in the 70s was quite major. Like people will know about it. You can read about it. But nobody, I mean, people saw it, but nobody saw it. And then there, were, there was more, I, once I did the historical research, there's lots and lots of examples of that. And what I was really interested in writing the novel set in the modern day is that it is something that will not go away. Like once it happens, everybody's seen it. You know, it once it gets on one thread or YouTube or TikTok, like it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And that was what I was um, fascinated by thematically. From a craft perspective, what I wanted to deal with was, I mean, crime novels that have their lane. And I really wanted to try and write a crime novel that was asking, you know, it's so much, so much of it is a how done it more than a who done it. There is, it is a who done it. Um, if you pick it, good on you. But um, it's a who done it, but it's also a how done it. And it's a how done it in the constraints of the genre. I wanted to look at what murder is. You know, we're, we're so far past an Agatha Christie knife in the back in front of a fireplace. And I really wanted to push that. To its limits and that that that's why such modern um kind of issues such as these live streaming social media things started to play into the novel it's interesting that you mentioned um Benjamin, about staying in your staying in your lane because i felt that um quite a lot of it there's um you you kind of shake up the conventions or you, you play around with it um it's driven obviously by this familial sort of dynamic and these wants and needs and obligations but also the character of jack himself i mean um he's not your kind of standard or it's standard in so far as uh, he's not a cop and he's not a journalist and he's really adamant. There's there's a couple of times when he gets confused as being a journalist and he's quick to correct that. I like that because that's that's something that's kind of heralds in this new sort of contemporary era whereby he's a podcast host producer. So he's still hell-bent on getting to the bottom of what's going on, albeit unearthing the truth. But he's sort of this... Uh, he's emblematic of contemporary times. And I wanted to ask you about that because I was like, did you, uh, obviously so many different kinds of crime novels come across your desk. Was that something that you actively contrived to do? Or was that something that just happened organically? Um, I'd say actively. Um, to be perfectly honest, he's not a cop because I'm too lazy to do the research. Right. <laughs> I love that. Like, I mean, the, the detail that you have to go in. Right. The the real truth is that my favourite types of thrillers are regular people thrown in over their heads. And I was really wanted to do that. I wanted to have someone who shouldn't be part of it pulled into it. And Jack's a great character to write because he can't take a punch. And so, you know, he's not going to be able to waltz into a bar full of baddies and pick out the murderer and take him down. Like, he can't do that. But also, I'm like, he's clever and he solves the crimes in each of the books, but he's not that clever. <laughs> like, like he gets, he gets muddled things, you know, he misses things and he's got to reinterpret things and he brings his bias to it. And I wanted to really just properly have a regular guy pulled in over his head um, into, and in this book, as he discovers what it is and that these may, this may be a murder and and the consequences and then then you know people his life might be threatened you know he kind of evolved naturally into that 
um, hopefully as I feel like a, a regular guy does without me having to do any research. I love that, Benjamin. I love that a lot. So I love that that honesty. But yeah, it's hardcore because it's almost like you have to almost learn a profession, you know, obviously not quite to the extent as a police officer, but you're right, it's a lot. So I like that. But I also like the idea of the regular person in over their head because all of us can relate to that. Yeah, and I think it makes it feel a bit more dangerous, a bit more grounded and a bit more real mm. at the same time. I do think, and I'm, I'm People that write uh, books with cops as the main characters can absolutely do this, and Australian writers like Sarah Bailey absolutely do this. Um, I wanted to... I believe good crime novels are are character novels with a few dead bodies in them rather than the other way around. So the character that I wanted to tell and the characters that are in this book... um, they draw their characterization from outside of their jobs, basically. And and so it didn't really, on a certain level, it doesn't really matter if he's a cop or not. Um, but I wanted to tell his story and his personal story kind of matched up with a bit of a, uh, a no-hoper um, who's just released him from prison in this book as well. So, yeah, that's kind of, it allowed me to dip it into more of his... Um, personal history and it allows people to just go places and do things without having to get warrants or you know and he never has a gun which is really because I can never shoot myself out of a situation so it just kind of flexes muscle, different muscles. Yeah I think you're right and look Sarah Bailey she does a wonderful job but I think it's interesting as well having something different so you know you do have that ordinary guy and you know what do you do when you don't have a gun you know you don't have backup on its way you know you have to then be a bit more creative I guess. Yeah, I, sh- I should clarify, I do mean that the cop novels, Sarah Bailey, Catherine Perkin, yeah. Jen Harper, I mean, they're, they're all fantastic characterizations. Absolutely. I just mm-hmm. mean it's a different style yeah, totally. um, that I enjoy dipping into. Absolutely. You mentioned about characters driving the story and, and the bodies being in that is obviously, that's, that's a central core, but it's characters first. And I get that. I totally get that with, with reading this book, that it was character driven. I wanted to know... How you then, because you've had this brilliant concept and you've also got really realistic wants and needs from uh, tight-knit or dysfunctional family members. I get that. I wanted to know how you went about kind of fusing the two and in achieving what you set out to do, which is to sustain this pace and kind of ratchet up the tension and still kind of uh, have these sort of side moments. Some of my favourite parts were actually... um, Jack and Peter talking about what to do. And I just found that the, that, that is the tip of the iceberg was delved into, but yet you still managed to maintain this constant, the case progressing forward, tension continuing right up. How did you do that? How, how did that go? How did you go about doing that? Uh, well, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of putting pace on the page, that's something that I absolutely believe in. And, I mean, I use all of the normal tricks, um, cliffhanger chapters, lingering questions. Um, I think the real thing that unlocks a novel for me, because let's be honest, a novel is 90,000 words and I can write a good plot that taps out about 60. And by that I mean a plot with no characters. That's all plot. And so the other 30 has to come from somewhere. And the, the real trick is marriaging those character elements in that specific novel that you're writing at that time with those plot elements. So every question that Jack asks of himself or his father that is a character beat in this novel 
is a mirror or thematically relevant to the mystery questions in the crime that he's investigating. And some of them are more obvious than others, and some of them are completely unobvious and would never be thought about unless you sat down and went through them all one by one. But what it does is it creates this overarching environment that every sentence on every page is pushing towards the answer to the question, whether it's the authorial hand hinting at it metaphorically or whether it is a literal clue that Jack is looking at, um, it pushes it forward. So this book, when Jack talks to his father, but the book is about the power of words. So everything he says to his father is about the power of words, which is important to the actual mystery of the book and the themes of it. So it's once you reach the end, you realise that it all unites um, and that's how you kind of keep, keep the pace on the page. But on a thriller level, I strongly believe that there should be a clue on every single page of a mystery. Wow. I don't like books that have two clues and then they unlock it and the ending is, okay, um, I found this piece of evidence and I found this piece of evidence and that means that this is the killer. I really want my books to, and I, and hopefully in the denouement, most of them come across, but I really want it to really read like that happened on page one, that happened on page four, that happened on page seven, that happened on page nine, and they're all clues. Uh, and like I said, some of them are thematic and some of them are actual physical clues um, and they are all relevant. So that's how you get the pace up is by asking a question on every page and trying to drip feed something that needs to be answered. And if it's a character question, if you build your characters well enough, you can get the same amount of suspense over off a character's decision than you can off someone pulling a gun. Mm. I need to now know about your process because if you're saying that there's a clue on just about every page and you drip feed it through... I'm thinking, have you got this massive Excel spreadsheet? Have you got post-it notes all over your wall? Is it all in your head? Tell us, Benjamin. Uh, On my first book, I used a spreadsheet and I had, it was very simple. I had certain plot beats um, and I coloured the cells um, depending on the kind of intent of the chapter. And if I had too many of the same colour in a row, I I figure I was getting monotonous on one particular area of plot or something. This book, I had a couple of post-it notes in the walls. I write a lot in hotel rooms pre-COVID because I'm, I'm on tour as a, as a comedian. So I don't really carry around with me too much. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have that folder with jotted ideas. What I do do is I have my main manuscript uh, document, Word document, and then I have my synopsis. Now, my synopsis is just enough that the publisher lets me write the book. And then once I start writing, I completely go the opposite direction from it as soon as I, you know, and it's really hard to write a synopsis and I spend ages on them and then I start writing and I'm like, nah, this was just the pitch. I'll, I'll figure it out as I go along. Um, but in my Word document, right, so as I'm writing, I will leave a few blank spaces, a uh, few blank pages at the end and then I will have a page and that page has 10 sentences on it. And those sentences are really important sentences of the book. And most of those sentences are in the final version in full unedited um, because I don't change them once I write them. And they might be big moments. They might be big clues. They might be just important sentences that I like. And what I do is I write towards those sentences. And they're not in order. 
Um, but I know that they signify certain things that I'm trying to draw out at certain times. And so I will move them up into the manuscript as I'm writing towards them. The other thing that I do is that I cannot write through writer's block. So if I change something in the manuscript or if I'm not happy with the manuscript, every day when I finish writing and I put the full stop at the end of the last sentence I've, did, I've done, I want that to be of the quality that I would hand in to my publisher. So I edit strongly as I go. And if I change someone's hair colour, I know some writers are really brilliant at jotting down in a different colour on the manuscript. His hair's blonde now. Um, and then just keeping on going in order to keep the, you know, keep the magic happening. If I change someone's hair colour or if I introduce a clue, it's probably a better example, like a piece of paper that's important. That piece of paper gets worked into every page of the manuscript, um, either so that I know certain information about it's coming or, or that I know that I'm dropping it here or here. So I just go back and rewrite so that every time when my manuscript is left off, um, I feel like it's complete up to the point where I'm at, which helps me, I think, get a slightly polished first draft um, for me personally. I still do an untold number of edits on it, but um, it helps me get it to that stage. I, I hope a bit earlier. it makes me an interminably slow writer. Mm-hmm. But it must make the editing a little quicker, perhaps, than if you just zero drafted the whole way maybe i don't i i yeah i i, I like to believe that i'm making it easier <laughs> on myself but i don't have the counter experience yeah, that's it <laughs> to know but certainly i i would say that i i've never and maybe this is just luck i don't mean this is a brag but i think because i write them so slowly i i've never got the note that says lose 50 pages or this character has to go or um, I've certainly done that, but I've done that page by torturous page as it goes. So that's just how I write. I just, it's literally one brick at a time in a wall, but if Mm. the bottom brick is wonky, I will take down the wall and I will fix it up. Oh, I really like that analogy. I like and visualize that. Just quickly, comedy circuit. How's that happening in COVID? Is it still happening? Um, I've actually done a couple of live gigs in the last maybe two weeks. Great. Um, so just done a few little short sets. It's kind of cool because before COVID, I mean, as the big festivals, and I was very sad to miss out on things like the Edinburgh Fringe this year, which I was ready to go to. Um, big festivals, which are kind of big and, you know, it's insane and amazing and that's all the, that's what we do it for, right? And then there's these little kind of comedy clubs all across the city. You, you'll have rocked into one on a Tuesday night at a pub and someone's doing comedy in the corner. And before COVID, we used to all do them as comics to sharpen our material and the public does not care. Like, <laughs> you know, they don't care that comedy's on. But now that it's been away for eight months, these rooms are packed. Everywhere wow. go. It's so cool. People are so up for it. I'm, I haven't been to a live music gig um, yet, but I've heard from friends that it's the same. Like, people are so excited to be there. So uh, um, it's been kind of cool going back out there i've been rubbish i'm rusty as hell but um, <laughs> people are still laughing because they're so generous 
Well, that's a plug, Benjamin. I'm rubbish. Come and see me, though. It's great. <laughs> I'm a very good writer. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm an all right comic, but I'd that's... rather you buy my book than come to the show. <laughs> it's funny. I remember the last time I spoke to you, I said, oh, I'm going to come to a comedy show. I think you said you were touring at the beginning of 2020, and it was in my head to go, and then COVID hit, and I'm like, I still haven't been. So I might have to go to one of those shady shows and not tell you I'm there till the end. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Well, so you weren't rubbish at all, Benjamin. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been fun getting back out there and, and I look forward to, um, doing some live, uh, panel book events as well. Once, mm-hmm. once hopefully the writers festivals next year make a bit of a comeback because they're, they're really fun. Um, just to go and watch or to be a part of it's all great. I like the brick in the wall analogy as well. I was thinking it was more like instead of ripping off one band aid, you're ripping off 330 band aids like each time. So it's like you still, so you don't have to come back and edit and tear off that other Band-Aid, you've already kind of done it um, 330 times, especially because you're going back. So maybe reattaching the Band-Aid. And then Still very visual, right. Sam, but a bit grosser. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's very, just what I thought of straight away. It is kind of like that. And I think I say I'm a slow writer. And um, like I said, a book is 90,000 words. And it is, uh, I'm sure lots of writers feel that everywhere they put down, they're pulling from deep inside them. But for me, the advantage of doing that Band-Aid thing is that the last 15,000 fly because they're all, in comedy, we call it a callback. They're all callbacks. And because I'm relying on, like you say, 300 things and not one or two, um, those, those words fly out of me. So that's a fun, that's a fun uh, consequence of doing it that way. Has the process gotten easier for you overall, Benjamin? Like the more you've, the more you've written, the more novels you've kind of gotten into now or...? Um, no, my fiance <laughs> says I was complaining that either side of midnight was the hardest thing I've ever written. My fiance said, that's the, what you said on the last book. <laughs> and now I'm in the middle of writing my new book and I'm saying it's the hardest thing I've ever written. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, they're hard for different reasons. Either side of midnight was really hard because it was really delicate. It was a really, it was a real house of cards kind of crime novel. Um, the new one that I'm writing is hard for a different reason, uh, just in kind of a style and plot mechanics kind of way. So I think the Bridget, the things that I conquered on both Greenlight and Either Side of Midnight, if, if, if I'm going to sit down and write a novel for a year, I want to be doing something different myself. So I, I set myself these challenges at the start of a new novel because it's a new novel so it's got to it's got to invigorate something and that's the bit that I find hard is the bit that I'm concentrating and focusing on doing differently than the others that said I wrote something um short during the first lockdown um for fun and I purely approached it as this is my fun project and um that was I didn't have as much trouble with that I I I think I well, not. I, I think I think I rested on on my professional edit more um, than my personal edit, and I just got the words out, and and that was really kind of um, freeing in a way. And then I tried to do that in the novel I'm writing now, but it's not working, so I'm back to the old old strategy. Different, and it's the same. Comedy is a lot of kind of thinking of the idea and 
turning it over in your head and then presenting it to people in kind of a, what do you think? And then doing it again differently the next night so that the editorial process, if you will, is, is organic and it's based on actually saying it live and, and, and it's more dynamic, I suppose. A novel is, is interesting because you, have, you do the whole thing pretty much by yourself until it's finished. Um, but I use a lot of the same techniques. I mean, comedy is all about pace. Um, it's all about word economy. Uh, you know, you'll spend, a good comic will spend a week on seven words because they know that there's a famous Jerry Seinfeld thing where he says that the word Pop-Tart is funnier than the word, I don't know what word it is, but it's <laughs> like a specific joke that he's written a um, hundred different ways with different words. So it really teaches you word economy. Um, and it's also it's the element of surprise. That's how you get a laugh and that's how I do my crime novels. Um, you're looking for a different emotional response, but you are still with comedy, you're laying in the setups and then you're revealing a punchline, punchline setting up tension in the setups, breaking it for the punchline. And it's the same thing, except in a crime novel, you don't have a punchline. You have who the killer is or, or what happened. It's interesting that you wrote about twins, Sam and Harry, and you're a twin. I take it, did you draw much from being a twin for this? Um, I think I would get in a bit of trouble if I said that I drew too much from my relationship with my brother. I, <clears throat> I think that the genuine parts of it, of, of their, the actions that they do are not uh, completely fictional. But the um, the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions I think that represent brotherhood, I, I do draw a lot from um, from my relationship with my twin brother, um, and same with Jack and his brother. I mean, again, mm. action wise, physical, with the way that Jack feels about his brother, I, I kind of thought, you know, how would I feel in this situation? And so, and so I hope it comes across as reasonably genuine. I really wanted to put twins in the novel because I wanted to write a thriller novel that didn't use the fact that they were twins as the plot point. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind spoiling that because lots of people have come up to me or sent me messages and said, it's a mirror. Oh, swap the, swap the people. And it's like, no, because I, <laughs> you know, twins don't always have to be part of the twist. Like uh, I wanted to use them as real people and the, all elements of their relationship that drives a lot of the plot is how close they are. And I don't think it was as convincing if they were just brothers. So mm-hmm. that's why I kind of leveled it up with the twin thing. So Benjamin, you're very unique in that you are uh, a literary agent. So what was the transition to the opposite side of the table like? I know you've written novels before, but you found it easy or more difficult considering no doubt how many brilliant novels of the genre you've read and have come across your desk and you've helped publish over the years? Or have you kind of gotten a comfortable handle on it all now? Um, I think it's it's helpful that I know the rules <clears throat> of the genre and I I know what I like to read. Um, I know everyone knows what they like to read, but I've really had that honed over the years and I know what I, um, sometimes when I'm writing a scene, <clears throat> I think, nah, cliche, 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 cliche. So maybe I can, maybe I've got a bit of a better filter on some of those things. Um, but I find it... Um, I find it very difficult because I've read so much stuff to, um, I find it very difficult some of the personal standards that I put on myself. Mm. Um, Sometimes I'm worried that I've read something before 
uh, it's that classic South Park episode where the Simpsons did it. Like, that's always in my head. Like, wh- where is this? You know, uh, how can I really stand out in the genre because I know what's out there? Um, and just making sure that, you know, it's it's a bit of pressure is the fact that I work in the industry and write books. They have to be good. Otherwise, people will think that not only am I a bad author, but also <laughs> that I suck at my job. So... <laughs> No yeah, pressure. No pressure, yeah. No, yeah. Pressure. <laughs> no I do put a, a fair amount of pressure on myself for that reason. But um, I think overall it's an advantage, I think, that I I get to immerse myself in the world of books every day and write novels. It's a, a really special thing. And also that whole pressure on yourself. So when you try and write anything, you're like, oh, it's not as good. It's never going to be as good as A, B, C, D, E, F. You know, I think over the last three years of just, you know, I've always been a huge reader, but this has just, you know, probably doubled my reading each year. And it does change how you think about your own writing or books in general, I think. Yeah, I, I, I love it when a book blows my mind. And, and it doesn't, I don't read them with too sceptical an eye. But I think what happens when you read so much, I think you can start to see the bones mm-hmm. or the author's hand across the page. And that's something that I, it's, it disappoints me as a person that I'm seeing it. <laughs> and I, I mean that on, like I'm annoyed that I can't switch off that mm. part of my brain. I think that's what it is. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And it's nothing on the author and it's nothing no. on how brilliant the book is because, but it's just me. And I do the same thing at comedy shows and mm. I, I do the same thing with movies. Same thing at horror movies. Right. Yeah. We've just ruined everything for ourselves. We're such party there's poopers. This, there's this, um, <laughs> the best example I can think of to describe it is there is a certain framing and I'm, I'm not a filmmaker, but there's a certain framing that a cinematography uses when a character walks onto a road that means they're about to get hit by a bus mm-hmm. and it shits me and I've always liked that person getting hit by a bus in the next scene and then you're like damn it it's not even a flaw in the film it's just Argh. you think but it's getting people... older as well like when you get older it's just like it's really hard to find things that are funny or that impress you we become like these old people prematurely <laughs> definitely prematurely <Yeah. laughs> I'm an accelerated, cantankerous author. <laughs> I was really so impressed with the, the whole television, the whole capturing of the picture mm. of that, that. That opening sequence, that opening few pages, I was just like, this guy definitely has, has had quite a substantial amount of experience. I wanted to know, <laughs> Benjamin, like just how much... Why does your novel suck? No. That's my last question. That's my last question. That's my last question. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Yeah, we always like to insult the guests right at the end. Draw right them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out the door. Butter us up and then rise. <laughs> it was. I wanted to know, Benjamin. Did you? Did you? Because there's so much. I wish there wasn't in this world. There wasn't so much fertile. I, I wish there wasn't so much subject matter, real life stories that you were. That the subject matter was lush with for you to be able to to kind of um then obviously launch off or be inspired by. How did you go about? Was there a research component or were you kind of a bit loath to kind of delve too deeply into the research because it might influence or maybe, I don't know, even horrify you so much that you kind of didn't really want to write the novel? I, I don't know. Like, it was, was there, because, I mean, there was, obviously, there's mentions of multiple, like the Christine Chubbuck case, I only know about that because I've watched the, the really um, awesome biopic about her, um, 13 Reasons Why, all that sort of stuff. The, the messages between Conrad 
and the the that person from that I, I only know it from that um I love you now die documentary. I mean, you've obviously done research, but I wanted to know like how did you kind of like f- prevent yourself from diving headfirst and drowning in it kind of thing. Yeah, I mean that was really complex on this book. I do a lot of research, but I do a lot of uh, vibe based research. So what I do when I write a book is I you know, I, I send that synopsis to my publisher, I get the book accepted and the green light to um, continue writing it. And then maybe I have, you know, 10 months, 12 months to delivery and I sit on my hands for six months. Um, but what I'm really doing is I'm reading things and thinking about things and, and I'm absorbing it by osmosis. And, and, you know, maybe at the end of the day, I've written a page of notes from the research, but I've absorbed what I wanted out of really quite intensive in some areas. And then I put it back into the book because I never want it to feel overly researched. Mm. With this book, I mean, you make a good point. There's a lot of real cases in there. Um, it was tricky how much the similitude I went for in the book, as I explained before, the believability, but also some of the cases themselves sort of spoilers, right? So if I, if I led with them too early, it kind of gives away what my... It's, one, it's a book where if you figure out the theme of the book, you can figure out the book. So I had to play coy with those kind of research elements. Um, Every case that is mentioned in the book is a real case. Uh, As I say in the acknowledgements, everything that is on the page that is not one of the characters of the book is real. So when they say, you know, this thing happened on MySpace or Christine Chubbuck on the news or there was that Instagram thing, I mean, it's it's all real. And so that's... uh, quite hefty research and while I was writing the book I was trying to keep my finger on the pulse and you know the it was so on the button what I was writing that I had to change the book a couple of times because Mm. laws change um new things happen worse things happened and so it was really um something I had to really really look into quite deeply though I'm not the type of writer that then goes and lists everything that they found out on the page um just to fill words I I just use it to inspire my opinions and then I um, work from there. And of course, you know, this novel does contain themes of suicide and mental health. So please contact Lifelon or Beyond Blue if um, you need to do that. I think that's really important when writing this book and you've acknowledged that and yours as well. Now, Benjamin, on another note, why do you write? Oh, gosh. I think that I, I mean, the cheesy answer is, you know, you've got to. It comes from somewhere. And it's not that I think that what I have to say is the most important or that the books I'm writing are the best. Um, but I will keep writing them even if they don't, even if they stop getting published. It's just, uh, I think it's a, it's a really great thing that humans are able to, do and I mean that sounds kind of trite putting it like that but I think it's so important it helps you look at yourself while you're writing a book it helps you learn things about yourself Um, and also to be able to share it with people I think is a very unique and special thing and you know it's kind of you know books not so much affected by COVID but we've seen a real real pullback on things like theatre lack of support 
um, in these kind of creative practices. And I think that's just made me realize how important it is and how lucky I am that I get to do it. And so I do it because I think it's important. Absolutely. Great answer. I've always, I always think when I ask that question, the greater the pause, the greater the answer. So <laughs> good job. <laughs> Thank you so much, Benjamin, for your time, for chatting about your new book, Either Side of Midnight. I loved it. It kept me up at night and I know Sam did too. And it's a great addition to just the fantastic crime stories we have in Australia right now. So it's such a great time, I think, to be a lover of crime, which we all are. Yeah, it's every single thing on the bookshelf at the local shop is good by an Australian author in the crime genre. Like every single thing is great. Absolutely. Um, I, did, I did this list not long ago, um, you know, genres. I thought it's about time I did this. And I looked at all the crime novelists I'd spoken to and there are heaps just because I love crime myself and just because it's so strong in Australia right now. So the amount of crime on this podcast is huge. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm glad to be a part of it. I considered um, leaving a longer pause there for a joke on... <laughs> that you said that better answers have long pause, but I thought I'd started it and then I thought that you might not get it and just edit it out and I'd look like an idiot that didn't have anything to say. So, oh, the comedian's coming out. Either or not. <laughs> and thanks, Sam, for jumping in and good Thank luck you with your so new much. venture. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me on the program, Benjamin. Absolute pleasure talking to you.